0: Uh, We open Google News, we read the paper, and news often is not good. I mean, there's wars, battles scattered across the globe. Our own nation has been involved in military action in Afghanistan for over a decade. And when we try to examine what lies underneath these conflicts, we often uncover conflicts about ideas, truth claims, and about religion. Think about the battles, the atrocities in Africa between various religious tribal groups, Muslims versus Christians, Christians versus animists. They seem to be unending in the battles. And even over the past weeks, we hear of the escalation between largely Buddhist Pakistan and and largely Hindu India. Think of the Middle East, where we kind of wait with expectancy for what seems to be inevitable confrontation between Jewish Israel and Islamic Iran, or the ongoing war on terror as we speak of it in North America, and although we might not primarily see that as a religious conflict, the other side certainly does. You know, all this led the British biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins to conclude that one of the reasons we should do away with religion is these battles that come from religion, With a different perspective, I recall watching a television talk show not long ago and listening to a celebrity speaking in response to the fighting and battles between religious groups that we see in the world, and he pleaded to great applause, don't we all understand that we are really just teaching the same thing with our religions? And so you pause to wonder, is that the case? I mean, we live in a world today where we'll come in contact with individuals of other faiths more than at any other time in the past. I would guess you likely have individuals of a range of faiths along your own street. And there's a good chance you're working with individuals of other faiths. Your children will go to school with children from other faith heritages. And, And that is quite different from the far more monolithic communities in which many of us grew up, isn't it? So I think it's important, perhaps even critical, that we as followers of Jesus understand the truth claims of other faiths. Why? Well, so that, for one, we might understand one another. Additionally, that we might be able to build bridges of respect and relationship with those of other faiths. Additionally, that we might understand what what they've learned of God. and, And really, as we look at this, also that we might then have the opportunity to bear witness of our own faith, in, in words and in terminology they understand. So today, we are embarking on a new series. And we're asking together the question of Christianity and some of the other main religions and spiritualities of the day. What do we all believe? I mean, how does what the Christian faith teaches Compared to Eastern religions, to uh, Islam, to secularism, to Mormonism, on, on what things do we agree? On what things do we differ? And really, my hope in this series is that if those of other faiths are with us, they would hear our speaking of them and our description and summarization of their faith and feel like we're treating it with respect and accuracy, even if we disagree on core teachings. So that's our intent. But we could ask, well, well, why even bother in doing this? And I think we have a picture of why in the book of Acts from the Apostle Paul. Now, if you read through the New Testament, it's evident when you look at Paul's life that Paul really had very little patience for those claiming to be Christians that were false teachers. I mean, like the Judaizers and Galatians we referred to last week. He confronted them abruptly. But it seems like we see a different approach from Paul at times. When he encounters teachers of other religions. For example, in the city of Athens. Now, now Paul clearly, the apostle Paul, clearly believed what Peter expressed in Acts 4. Look at this in Acts 4 verse 11. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now Paul wasn't wavering from that belief, foundational belief, by any means when he was in Athens. But flip over to Acts chapter 17 and see how Paul responds in Acts 17 to these worshipers from another religion. And this is what we read in Acts 17 verse 22. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, and Areopagus simply means the hill of Ares, and Ares was a Greek god of war, also known as Mars by the Romans. And he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He compliments them. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this God I proclaim to you. Now I want us to just look. This wasn't formulaic, but look at what Paul does here. Let's just walk through it. See how he responds to these individuals of another faith. For one, I think we could say this. He responds. He understands something of their beliefs as he speaks to them. Secondly, he responds with respect to them. He says to them, I can see in every way you are very religious, He's really complimenting them. Thirdly, he speaks of a bridge, a a commonality of belief with them, this unknown God that they worshiped in some way. And I want you to notice this. He doesn't begin by condemning their beliefs, does he? No, he begins with their beliefs, and then from that point, fourthly, he seeks to draw them to the reality of who God is. So in this series, that's the approach we're taking as we walk through this together. Now it's going to be a bit unusual perhaps because we're going to devote a chunk of time each week to looking and examining, learning about these other faiths. And and I realize in part a series like this can can feel uncomfortable, for some even maybe threatening, because it can raise questions or insecurities about our own faith. Some of you might even feel like, "Will, will my faith... We stand listening to the truth claims of other religions. So I just want you to know in this, that pastorally, boy, I, I both believe and have been praying that in the coming weeks, we're going to be better equipped and formed in speaking of Christ to those in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, our schools, the world around us, through this together. So let's start here, right? Let's start with statistics, don't you love statistics? Let's start with this. What about the world population? No, we're right about seven billion, the estimates say, world population. Well, of that, as far as Christians estimate that there are 2.2 billion individuals in the world, roughly, that claim to be followers of Christ. And that would be about a third of the world population, roughly. Now, as far as Islam goes, there's 1.65 billion individuals that would be of the Islamic faith. That would be about a quarter of the world's population. Now, thirdly, along with that, Buddhists. Buddhists are kind of an intriguing group because the estimates are somewhere between 500 million to 1.9 billion, quite a span. And I'll be talking about why in a few minutes. And in addition to that, as far as the Hindu faith, there are estimated to be about 1 billion Hindus in the world, about a seventh of the world's population. And then according to the Mormon church, the Mormon church says that in the world there are about 14 million followers of Mormonism. Now obviously, comparatively, that's a very small number, but we're going to be speaking of that in the weeks ahead because of the prevalence of Mormonism in our province and our city together. So that gives you a picture of what's happening, even statistically, uh, as we walk through this and, and move in our understanding. Now next week, I hope you can come back because we're going to be looking at Islam together. And and for that, we're going to have a guest with us, Dr. Wajdi Ishkender, who himself was a former Muslim, and hearing of his own journey through the Muslim faith. Now added to that, though, this week, we're going to begin by considering the faith teachings of what is somewhere between one out of ten to one out of three, roughly, individuals of the world's population. We're going to look at the teachings of Buddhism today. Now, today, I want to, as we look at Buddhism, give a disclaimer that we'll really offer every week in this. I, I want you to know that uh, through my own journeys of study, I, I did research in religions of other faiths in my graduate studies. I've done additional research in Buddhism in past months. And, and by no means means I'm any kind of expert on Buddhism. In fact, I want to start by saying I'm really a novice in understanding the depths of Buddhism. But additionally, compared to the other religions we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead, the teachings of Buddhism is one of greatest diversity, really. That's why the estimates range from 500 million to 1.9 billion. There are so many different expressions of Buddhism. In in fact, as we look at this, there are different schools of teaching in Buddhism. Theravada is one. Mahayana is another. And under Mahayana, there's Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. A whole range of schools of understanding. So it's hard at times to pinpoint what exactly they believe. But in some ways, that's not like an individual coming to Christianity and hearing Catholics say one thing about doctrine, Orthodox Christians saying another, and then Protestants saying another. Got, Got the picture for that? So that's something to the picture within Buddhism. So for the sake of our study here, we're going to try to look at the common elements of Buddhist teaching. Now now for this as well, you might want to take notes on this talk. You got these sermon notes in your viewpoint. Take notes because otherwise you won't remember a thing I said. All right? That's how much confidence I have. So, so take that. It might be of help. There we go. It's one of yours. You can use that. So here we go. Ready to dive in? You don't want fluff today, do you? You didn't come here for fluff, right? We're gonna do some work together. Ready? So let's start. So we look at Buddhism and say, what is Buddhism about? And really, to understand Buddhism clearly, you need to begin with the teaching and life of a man called Siddhartha Gautama. Here's an artist's depiction of him Siddhartha Gautama. Now, Siddhartha was the one who eventually came to be known as the Buddha. He lived from about 563 to 483 B.C. Now to get an idea of time frame for that context, timeline-wise, that's roughly the time where the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon. So Siddhartha would have been a rough contemporary of the biblical prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, of Daniel in the lion's den. He would have been roughly about that time frame. And so in this journey, the teachings of the Buddha, of Siddhartha, the stories about him came to be known as the Pali Canon. And the Pali Canon was passed along for centuries just orally. And interestingly, it wasn't until the time of Jesus that those teachings were written down. So, Jesus might have known about the Buddha. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But these polycanon teachings, wide span and variety, expressions spreading predominantly in Asian nations, came to spread more fully. So understanding Siddhartha, what was Siddhartha about? Well, Siddhartha, for one, grew up in the lap of luxury. He was the son of a king, a king of a city state. So Siddhartha was a prince, and he had everything he wanted as a young man. At the age of 16, he was married, had a son, lived that life of incredible privilege, wealth beyond measure. But interestingly, in his life, he found no satisfaction in all the wealth he cumul- accumulated. Now, he grew up in what is present-day Nepal. At that time, it was part of greater India. So the religion of his day and area was Hinduism, which is important in understanding his own journey. Because for the people of that day, Hinduism... Maybe we could call it a difficult religion, because it was hard for ordinary adherents of Hinduism, even royalty, to feel any kind of connection with the god or gods, with Brahma of Hinduism. And the reality is, even today in Hinduism, it's only those that are far along in the Hindu faith that would even speak of having some kind of relationship with God in some way. So the Hindu religion of Siddhartha's day was largely led by a priestly class. It was taken by the elite. Individuals could only go to the priests. They would give the offerings and sacrifices, and they made the contact in some way with the deities. So there was no connection with God for these individuals. And again, that's important because that's the context out of which Buddhism rose. So Siddhartha, he's at age 29 now. Remember age 29? For most of us. He's struggling with all this, and he wants to be freed from the confines of his father's little kingdom. He wants to explore the world. He wants to see what life is really like. Remember those days? So by the age of 29, and at 29, he leaves his father's palace to explore the world. And you know where he goes? To his own city. He starts small. begins with his own city. Now, in in most Buddhist temples, there's a mural depicting Siddhartha's journey into his own city. This is one depiction of it. And you see it there. Some say this is a legendary story. Others say it's historical. Siddhartha's the one there with a gold disc behind his head. His charioteer is leading the way. And as he heads into the city, as the story goes, he encounters a decrepit old man, a sick man, as you see there in the middle, and then a young girl grieving the death of her mother. Now the story unfolds this way. He heads into the city, sees this, and for the first time he sees life as it truly is. His father had sheltered him to this point in his life, from all the pains of life. So Siddhartha goes day after day into his own city. And he learns from that, that we all break down eventually. And that sickness comes to every one of us in some way during the journey of life. And he learns that every one of us face death. So Siddhartha is troubled by this. this just the transience of life, the suffering he sees around him. And actually he asks a question that every single one of us should ask if we're honest. I mean, if every one of us is going to suffer and wither and die, what is there to hold on to? that's a great question and in this Siddhartha experienced what the a German philosophers would later call angst everyone say angst it's that despair that sense of uncertainty of what's ahead that longing okay how do we live if we're going to die so quickly if each one of us is withering and, and that's just not a thing of his day every one of us can connect with that in some way can't we? Over the holidays, Jillian, our kids and I, we were looking at family pictures from past years. And for some reason, probably the most repeated point of observation was how the rich, dark brown hair I once had was long gone. <laughs> Everything's gray. And again, for some reason, they seem to get no one to delight in this observation. <laughs> and really realize, you know what? If I have grandchildren, they will never know me with dark hair but there's Grecian formula. <laughs> a nice shade of purple, what do you think? So come next week, we'll see. But the reality is, every one of us is growing older. We're all withering in some kind of way. Death is ahead of us. And as we stand at the deathbed of someone we love, we, we have a taste of that angst. We, we can understand that despair in some way, right? So Siddhartha sees all this suffering, the brevity of life, and he wonders what the solution is. I mean, what do we do about all this? And interestingly, something like Solomon from Scripture, Siddhartha finds that nothing, not drink or women or food or wealth or power, provide any hope for him. Nothing relieves the angst he feels. And so you know what he does? He leaves his family, his son, his possessions in his home. And he pursues the life of a monk, thinking if I sit under the wise sages of Hinduism, I'll find some peace. But he found no peace in the religious observance. So, then he pursues the life of an ascetic. He starves himself, even at one point, trying to live on one grain of rice a day. Ever tried that? That's a little amount of food. It's not till six years later on this journey, he sits under a Bodhi tree meditating. And as the story goes, he goes into a trance, and in that trance, he sees life from a different perspective, and he awakens after the trance, and his angst is gone. He's received enlightenment. And from that point on, Siddhartha is called the Buddha, which simply means the enlightened one. He's 35 years old at this point. For the next 45 years of his life, he commits himself to teaching others about how to find this kind of enlightenment, how to overcome the angst of life. And by most accounts, he was a gentle man, a just man. He he formed a monastic community. It wasn't until the age of 80 he eventually died. That's a basic story of the Buddha. And that's the events that lead up to his life of enlightenment, as he described it. Now, we look at his life and say then, because understanding his life, out of his life, what then are the essential teachings of Buddhism, of Buddhist belief? Now, there are many, but I'm going to just note four, and you'll see how they flow out of his life experience, I think. For one, we'd say this, Buddhism, for one, is non-theistic. It's not atheistic or agnostic, it's non-theistic, because really, thinking of his own journey and his own journey of life, the gods of Hinduism provided no hope for him. So really, he said, whether it's a God or not doesn't really matter. We don't find hope through any kind of God. You have to find peace through your own mind. It's up to us individually, by our own efforts. No God will help us in this. So it was non-theistic. Secondly, at the heart of Buddhism is what's called the four noble truths. The four noble truths. And I want to simplify this, but just to let you know what they are, they're this. And you'll see again how they flow out of his experience. For one, life is characterized by suffering. It's characterized by suffering. Secondly, that suffering, it results from our ignorant cravings or ignorant attachments to things that we think will bring us pleasure, either things maybe want to be in our life or don't want to be in our life. Those attachments we have, we have to be loose from them. And so thirdly, the whole goal of this life, this spiritual journey, is the cessation of that sense of suffering. That's the goal of Buddhism. And fourthly then, the way to end the sense of suffering is through what's called the Eightfold Path. We won't get into that, but it's a path that they speak of, of right understanding, of right thought, right action, right effort. And this comes about, that Eightfold Path, through meditation that will lead to enlightenment. Okay, that's the four noble truths. Got that? So again, it's non-theistic. The belief, core belief is the four noble truths. Thirdly, then, at the heart of their beliefs is karma. Now, this Buddhism borrowed from Hinduism. Now, if you know about karma, karma is supposed to be a force that you build your life upon. And really, according to Buddhism, that's really all there is, this karmic force. And so they would say that the more good you do or say or think the more good things will come your way. Also, the more bad you do or say or think, the more bad things will come your way. Now, if you have your intent up at all, I I think you can notice that is an increasingly popular idea in our day, isn't it? We hear it more and more, even from followers of Jesus and from Oprah for sure. You will hear, I know, I've listened to her. Fourthly, fourth principle or belief, is reincarnation. Again, this was borrowed from Hinduism as well, reincarnation. And reincarnation says that when your life is over, if you had mostly good karma, your karmic energy will then be transferred to a new being, a new person who's being born. On the other hand, if you had mostly bad karma in your life, it's possible you could go to hell, which would simply mean that you would be going into, your karmic energy would go into a hungry ghost or into an animal or a person in a various stage along the way. Now on this, understand, there's, on this point, this is where Buddhism distinguishes itself from Hinduism. Because Hinduism would say, we do have a soul and that soul within us is God, they would say. In Buddhism, you don't have a soul. All you have is this karmic force in you, kind of the compilation of all the good or bad from your past and present lives. Another thing that's interesting to me on this, on reincarnation, is I think some people in our day, again, even some people in the church, talk about reincarnation as though it's an attractive idea or belief. But understand, in in the religions that embrace reincarnation, they don't celebrate that belief. They don't think, we love reincarnation, it's so good. It's not something they hold on to with delight. Rather, they see reincarnation as a prison. The whole goal is to escape it. and escape happens, again, through enlightenment when you attain nirvana, And nirvana simply means extinction. You extinguish the cycle of suffering being repeated. Okay? So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of Buddhism. Again, there's much more we could talk to. But this hopefully gives you a bit of a picture of what Buddhism is about as we look at it together. So for one would say this. There's actually many things we can learn from Buddhists. Buddhism is something to teach us about being still and quiet and not leading the frenetic pace of life that we tend to in our day. If you look at Buddhist teaching, it also sounds very much like the wisdom literature that's prevalent throughout the ancient times and prevalent in Scripture as well. Because when you read Buddhist teaching, you could almost see how close it is with much of our biblical wisdom teaching. For example, in the Dhammapada, which is a compilation of what's supposed to be the Buddha's teaching. In Dhammapada, verse 5, listen to this. This is what it says. Hate is not conquered by hate. Hate is conquered by love. This law is eternal. That almost sounds like something Jesus could have said, doesn't it? Or in the Dhammapada, verse 133, we read this. Never speak harsh words, for they may come back to you. Which also, that's right in line with the teaching of Proverbs or the book of James. We could almost see it there. So in one way, we could see many things that we could say we agree with in Buddhist teaching. Kind of like Paul saying to those religious ones in Athens. But there are also many points on which we as followers of Jesus would differ fundamentally from the teachings of Buddhism. And three of those primary differences that I want to point to quickly are in our understanding of God, our understanding of our human condition, and thirdly, our understanding of what happens in the afterlife. So how do we differ regarding God? And I'll put it this way. The fundamental difference between Christianity and Buddhism is our starting point. Will you just read that with me? The fundamental difference between Christianity and Buddhism is our starting point. It's not some tertiary element. It's right at the starting point we differ. Because for Buddhism, Buddha, he could not experience God through his Hindu religion. So he came to the conclusion God is a non-issue in this life. God isn't really relevant in facing the sufferings we face in our human condition. But in the Christian faith, in the teaching of Christ, it begins, it is centered wholly on the belief that there is a God who created the universe for the very purpose of walking in relationship with humanity. And that this God, he's personal, he's knowable, he, and he longs to be known by his creation. And he created humanity in his image, in the imago day, And you therefore have a soul that's been formed in the image of God. And God longs for us, it says, to be his children. That's how it speaks of us. He created us to be recipients of his love. And the God of Scripture is a God who therefore constantly pursues us. Martin Luther said God is the hound of heaven because he pursues us. He loves us. He weeps with us when we weep. He rejoices with us when we rejoice and is sometimes angered by us. But he wants to be our heavenly father, our Abba, That is our starting point. And and friends, therefore, that changes everything in trajectory of those two religious faiths. You can understand if one of them understands that there's a God who longs to and does understand our angst. The heart of our faith is that this personal God loved us with, with such extravagance that he reached out to us in our angst and despair. And and entered into our angst. God became flesh. In fact, we could put it this way. Jesus became angst for us. He took our bad karma on himself. That we might have put to our account his perfection in life. His righteousness. And his love was so great that he therefore died on the cross. Receiving on himself the judgment due us and conquered this prison of death and life he conquered hopelessness through his resurrection can you see how dramatically different those are which then leads to our difference in understanding about our human condition again as followers of Christ we understand and agree about the angst that we face in this life and the difficulties In fact, I'd say, although I know it wasn't his intention, I think the Buddha eloquently sets up for us our need for a Savior, our need for Christ. Because he says, rightly, this suffering is our human condition as human beings. Our despair, eventually. And as followers of Jesus, we acknowledge that, but that is only part of our human condition. It's not our central focal point. We would say as followers of Jesus, yes, there is suffering in life. And that suffering can come at times because we wrongly or inappropriately attach ourselves with hope to something that cannot give hope, whether it be to wealth or possessions or riches or power, all the things that are transient. In fact, Jesus said, so seek therefore the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things you worry about, those will be added to you. So we'd say, yes, we agree with that. But there are some things about Christianity says, you were made to be attached to this. You were made to grow in attachment to your spouse. Might that relationship bring suffering? Anyone? <laughs> Not for me, maybe for you, I don't know. You, you were made to grow in attachment to your children. Will that relationship involve suffering? I I guarantee it, right? It it will. But that enriches it. And sometimes there's undeserved suffering in this world because people do unjust, painful things to one another. But even their scripture says that somehow through that, even in our undeserved suffering, out of that God can wring out good. And then that's why early followers of Jesus, even early on, like the Apostle Paul said, they embrace suffering. They didn't pursue it in weird kind of ways, but when it came, they said they embraced it. Listen how Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. What he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I mean, through God's grace, even suffering can transform us. I mean, we aren't asked to pursue it, but when we suffer, we can. We can rest in the knowledge that even though God might might not be causing the suffering, he can use it for good in our lives. And therefore, the biblical response to suffering is not detachment from life. It's not being uncaring, but rather it's hoping in God. Jesus put it this way in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 14 and verse 1, uh, listen to Jesus' words. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And, And that leads to the third distinction we have from Buddhism, which is our understanding of what happens in the afterlife. Again, in contrast to Hinduism, Buddhism teaches you don't have a soul. Again, what you have, what you are, really is only this karmic energy. So when you die, your energy gets passed along to another being or creature in some kind of way. And, and there's nothing left, therefore, of your memories, of your character, your personality. And so if after these hundreds of reincarnated lives, you are ever able to reach enlightenment, and, and you, therefore, do not cling to anything in life, you, you don't love life, you don't desire life, you don't desire anything anymore... And you enter nirvana. What is nirvana? Remember? Extinction. Your karmic energy is just dissipated into the universe. There's no more you. And friends, that could hardly differ more significantly from the teachings of Jesus. Which says that you do have a soul. You were created by God. And your soul is eternal. Your body will wither. Your soul will continue on. And if we could say, if there's one word to say, what the essence of the Christian faith, it is this. It's resurrection. It's Easter. That although we will wither, you will wither, although your body will fade, and and your hair will turn a lighter shade of brown, perhaps, your soul, you, you will continue on. And God and Jesus came so that you could have abundant life, not just in your few years here, but for literally eternity. And so you and I, we have a choice in that way. You and I can reject Christ. And face that eternity without God. in What is hell? Or we can turn to Christ in faith. We can put our life and our hope in him. On his death on our behalf. And his resurrection. And, and therefore we have a hope of being in God's kingdom. Enjoying peace for eternity. Of, of getting a new body in some kind of way. And being reunited with those who have gone ahead of us in faith. So this life here, our brief years here. And It's not it. It's what C.S. Lewis calls it. These are just shadow lands we're living in. There's an eternity ahead. And this, again, is how Jesus speaks of it. Back in John 14. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Are you living your life that way? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Amen? So we can learn many things from our Buddhist friends. We can. We can learn how they seek to live life in gentleness and nonviolence. And we can learn from their wisdom teachings, which so often seem to echo the teachings of Scripture. And we can learn from them their encouragement to live lives that are, are still and quiet. But also, as followers of Jesus, we have much to offer our Buddhist friends as well. And above all this... The good news of hope, of life, eternal life, found only in Jesus Christ. That's our news. So, so can we pray together? Will you bow your heads with me? And be- before I pray, maybe even today as you hear of this good news of Christ, it's something you want to respond to personally. Where your heart is, I, I want him. I want hope for eternity. I want Jesus as my Lord. And even before I pray, just in this quietness and stillness and silence, you can pray your own prayer to God, expressing that desire and reality of your heart. Oh, God, forgive me. You know my angst, my despair. Would you bring Christ and bring healing, relief, forgiveness? that I might know you both now and for eternity. And God's word says, incredibly, if anyone is therefore in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. Everything has been made new. And Father, we thank you for your grace. We pray, Father, that we would be gracious ambassadors of Christ in the world around us to those we encounter that are following the path of Buddhism, we pray, Father, for one, we would walk with respect and graciousness with them, that we would truly learn from some of the gracious dimensions of their lives and how they seek to live, and that, Father, both they and we would ultimately know the only hope that is Christ. Oh, Father, lead us to this end, we pray, and all God's people say, Amen. Amen.